Hi everybody, it's Julie and Emily coming to you with an awesome um, Valentine's Day week episode. This week we feature Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman because we are determined to highlight awesome, powerful women and she is the Congresswoman from New Jersey's 12th Congressional District. Um, with a really rich and varied history. She was, uh, first does not begin to describe it, the first African-American congresswoman from New Jersey, the first woman, um, African-American woman, to be the assembly minority leader when she was in the assembly. Uh, she was the state Democratic chairwoman. Um, so she has had a really rich and varied history and, and many, many decades of being um, at the forefront of progressive fights. For me, this is really special because she is my hometown congresswoman, and I am so pleased that we could have her on for a great discussion. And it is a great discussion. She had a lot of very remarkable things to say, um, and really you see where the energy, the progressive energy is coming from in the House. It's from people like her who really are driving this, this very strong progressive agenda, and we really get into a lot of topics that I think will trigger our conservative listeners and maybe thrill our liberal listeners and inform everybody in between. Oh, and especially today when we recorded this on the one year since the Parkland shooting and she talks about the two gun bills that she introduced and why gun legislation is so important and also really makes some distinctions on some misunderstandings with a lot of gun legislations. Uh, she'll get into it, but simply that Democrats are not trying to take guns out of people's homes. If you're a responsible gun owner, you will keep your gun. Uh, this is to take it away from the people who should not have them and who could potentially commit these atrocities and just to have more orderly rule of law. Yeah, I mean, she was fantastic. Um, again, I urge everybody, regardless of your political affiliation, to listen to her. Um, and so she's also the, the congresswoman who invited... Um, one of the Trump workers, the undocumented Trump workers um, from Trump National to talk, come to... Talk about putting yeah, salt in Trump's wound. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> talk about getting salty, right? Um, to the State of the Union address. Uh, so with that, we give you Congresswoman Bonnie Watson-Coleman from New Jersey's 12th Congressional District. We are good to go. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. It is um, a huge honor to have you, not just because February is Black History Month, but also because we have decided we're going to spend a lot more time in the show profiling strong and powerful women, and I cannot think of a bigger and better example than to have you on as we launch that effort. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's a very nice thing to say. Thank you. Well, as we're, as we're talking today, um, news just broke that the president is about to declare a national emergency to get funding for his wall, um, which you in Congress refuse to give him. What do you make of that? Well, I guess it puts us in court immediately. Um, I don't think that he's established the emergency that would sustain that, re that request. Um, but given the fact that the courts are being impacted by his appointments, who knows what they'll come up with. But I think that, I, I, I don't think that this will fly. And I think that it's just, um, something that he's going to use to say that he took it as far as he could take it. You know, uh, it's, it's kind of the hypocrisy is kind of astounding, and I think you did a very good job of highlighting that at the State of the Union. Um, you brought as your guest one of the women that was an undocumented worker at his uh, golf club in Somerset County, New Jersey, and uh, 
What was the reaction from your colleagues on both sides of the aisle? I can imagine some of the Republicans probably weren't happy that you highlighted that kind of hypocrisy on the part of the president. Uh, Victorina is amazing. I couldn't, half the time, obviously, I didn't understand what she was saying, but I knew what she was saying just by feeling it. So I, you know, my colleagues were, were really happy uh, to see her, and we gave her an opportunity to be in front of a lot of different media to get her, her message out, and for us, for us to get our message out on the hypocrisy that is represented by what he does, this president, what he does as a president, what he says, but what he really does as a person who just is so mo- motivated by money. Did you get the sense that she's worried about being deported now that she's so much in the public eye? Is she concerned about her well-being? She's been here for a long time. She's worked at Trump yeah. National well, for a long time. Number one is that she has applied for asylum, and normally those individuals are not deported until their, their cases are um, adjudicated. And number two is that even beside that, She's a witness, a material witness to violations of uh, labor, labor laws, um, hostile work environments, and probably other sort of legal things that I may not even know about. And to try to deport her, knowing that she is this material witness, would be an act of retribution, and I don't think they'd be allowed to do that. I hope you're right. Um, it, it's interesting to me, and, and because this is Black History Month, and I do want to highlight this a little bit, um, you're the first African-American woman elected to Congress from, from New Jersey, which is a very diverse state, if not the most among the most diverse states in the country, but yet New Jersey has not sent too many diverse people to Congress um, in its history, unfortunately. But how, how has it been different? You gather under President Obama, um, certainly the Republicans were in charge, the rhetoric, I don't think, was as charged, certainly under President Obama, as it is today under President Trump. What has been the impact on you and your colleagues? So let me first talk about coming in under President Obama, because while we had the presidency, we were still in the majority. I mean, in a minority in, in Congress, and it was difficult for us to get anything that we wanted to get done, because it was a very sort of mean-spirited, right-wing um, uh, Congress that held um, Ryan hostage the entire time he was the speaker. It's different now that we're in the majority, yet we still have this president to deal with. But the Black Caucus has been very um, impactful in ensuring that issues of voting rights and civil rights and um, um, uh, holding law enforcement um, accountable, those issues, and in getting our issues out and making them a part of the larger democratic agenda, as well as having a reflection of those issues that are important in the uh, funding um, resolutions and appropriations that are taking place, whether it's for SNAP, um, food deserts, um, uh, issues that would impact uh, single mothers, We've been very impactful in terms of ensuring that the Affordable Care Act is protected and that people have access to it. Um, So while we're in the majority in in the House, and we're just really getting started, but the first thing we did was try to open up government. Um, 
Yesterday, we had the first hearing in decades on gun safety legislation. So we're going to take advantage of being in the, the majority in the House and put forth the agenda that's for the people. Um, decent wages, working on infrastructure bill that works, making sure that a woman's right to choose is not um, continually um, stripped every other day but Thursday. Um, working on environmental issues that impact us in terms of environmental justice, um, as well as just having access to clean air and drinkable water. Uh, we, we really are focused on an agenda, making sure the Affordable Care Act is protected as, as much as we can, things of that nature. Those are the priorities of um, the House. Today I just had a, um, I left a meeting with civil rights groups and uh, a member of the Senate and a couple members of the House of Representatives on the, on the issue of LGBTQ um, Equality Act. And we know that we've got a better chance of that passing in the House now than ever before. And so we're working on, on, on issues that are important that have been left behind under Republican majority. Congresswoman, this is Emily, and I wanted to talk about the two bills you introduced to address gun violence, especially today being the Parkland anniversary. So the, the, the first bill I um, introduced was a bill that placed limitations on purchasing ammunition online. It required a couple of things. One is that when you purchase the ammunition online, you actually had to go to a dealer to pick it up so that you would be identified. And it also um, set a, um, a, a flag for the purchase of uh, over a certain amount of ammunition within a short period of time. It would flag an attorney general so that we would know uh, where there might be a problem arising where something may be planned that they need to have uh, a heads up on. The second piece of legislation that I that sponsored had to do with licensing guns, requiring individuals who wanted to purchase a gun and to own a gun to do a background check, to do a, uh, a safety training, to register the gun so that we know uh, who has guns and to, um, to un in over a certain period of time, to, to re-up that information so that we can uh, track these guns where they are. I have to just commend you and say how important that is because I'm, uh, from, I'm from Florida and I'm, I live 20 minutes from where Trayvon Martin was shot. And shortly after that, I wanted to prove a point to my friends. I was 22 at the time to show how easy it would be for me to get my concealed weapons permit. And I literally that weekend went to a Bass, signed up with a Bass Pro Shop, uh, took a four hour class, went to a shooting range, uh, showed them that I could shoot a Glock. Uh, then I got a certificate and then went to the police station, got my fingerprints run, and then within three months had my concealed weapons permit. And I was 22 at the time and it was so quick and so easy. And to get something that can take a life so quickly, especially during a time which it was so fraught, it's it's unsettling. Yeah, this is sort of an environment that kind of um, encourages hateful behavior, uh, divides people and makes people think that others are not as worthy as they are or, or not even um, 
worth treating with dignity and respect. And that comes from the White House. I mean, that, does, uh, that um, giving an okay, giving permission to be so divisive and so evil comes straight out of the mouth of the President of the United States of America. We have a, 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 a lot of gun safety legislation in the hopper. This was the first effort that we did, and the committee, the Democrats on the committee were disciplined, didn't in, entertain any um, amendments. We've got to be disciplined on, on this issue, as well as some other issues, and we're going to see uh, committee meetings and committee hearings on things that had just not been dealt with uh, the entire time that Republicans were in control. Uh, oversight, for one. I mean, there's oversight in the Oversight Committee, there's oversight in the Judiciary Committee and in the Intelligence Committee and in um, Financial Services Committee. Are all going to be holding this administration and this uh, president accountable for the things that we know some, some, somewhat about but know we have access to additional information and have the capacity now to demand that that information come forth. So this is a new day. Thank well, God it's a new thank, day. thank God it is a new day. But just staying on, on gun safety for a second, there's a lot of, I spent, as you know, a lot of years at Fox News. So a lot of our listeners are actually conservative. And, and every time I bring up registering guns, as you just did, their automatic responses, it leads to confiscation. You're going to make people, this is going to be the first step to confiscating guns. You are a lawmaker. You are the person that actually is writing this legislation. Can you just explain to people what this will and will not lead to, that it's just literally registration and it will not lead to anybody taking away your guns unless there's a very, very good reason as to why you shouldn't have a weapon? Yeah, I think that that's an important uh, point right there. No one is trying to take a gun away from a person who legally can have one. No one is trying to take away the hunter's guns who legitimately hunt. We're trying to make sure that guns aren't in the hands of individuals that shouldn't have them. Individuals uh, that even the president has allowed to have now um, who have... Um, records of uh, mental, mental health issues that shouldn't have access to guns that now you're making available uh, to have access to these guns. We want to make sure that the guns that are only intended to kill people, high-capacity guns, um, large magazines totally unnecessary for hunting big game, that those things are the things that we are um, focusing on. It is not the individual per se. We're not trying to take guns from individuals who have a legitimate right to have them. But we want to make sure we know who has guns. And we want to be able to track guns because guns get lost, guns get stolen, uh, guns get used for uh, illegal purposes that may have, had, may have been purchased legally at one time. So we're just trying to make our community safer. What do you say um, to those people? And again, I remember watching with horror, as I think everybody did, what was going on in Charlottesville, Virginia um, with, with marches. And I, and I kept thinking about somebody like your colleague, John Lewis, but not just him, um, you as well, and, and other um, African-American leaders who must have watched this and then heard the president say there are fine people on both sides of the equation. And specifically how that affects 
how far the African American community and other minority communities have come in this country, but how far they still yet have to go. And that to me really underscored that struggle more than anything else that I think I've seen in recent years, where you have um, people like you and others who are in this very, very influential position um, where you make our laws, where you we have an African American president um, who enacted those laws, and yet you have um, a whole movement and now a president who seems to embody dog whistles to a certain segment of the population that maybe I naively thought was gone um, or had retreated back into its hole that are now popping up again. And what do you, what do you make of that in the, next, in, the, in the next election, certainly what it bodes for us in the next few years under this president? I don't know that this president is going to be around for the next election. I think this is the most corrupt, inept uh, president that we've ever seen, at least any that I've ever uh, read about or learned about or studied in school. Um, I think that he is a hate monger. He um, is a distasteful individual that um, enjoys baiting people, throwing red meat to his to ultra conservative, uh, uneducated people who are prone to uh, not be very uh, open to diversity. I think racism has always been around. Racism is still going to be around, but he's given uh, permission to to just take it to his ugliest and, in some instances, most dangerous um, uh, areas. Um, but I but I think that there is uh, there is pushback, and it's we all recognize that whether it's discrimination against your you because you're black, uh, you're, you're gay, you're Jewish, you're Muslim, you're whatever, that this is a country that is great because of its diversity and that we are standing up for one another and recognizing that any discrimination against any one of our protected classes is a threat to any of us. I guess to go right off that point, I was a history major in school and in, in college, but then realized during high school a lot of history was quite euphemized and learning that it can't be. So how do you reconcile as a politician what you want to say that some may find more radical versus, you know, elections and having to reach out to constituents who may take the it, it wasn't my ancestors route? Well, I just try to communicate uh, my values to um, individuals that I am either just interacting with or attempting to convince to, to vote for me. And my values are that everybody is equal and everybody is entitled to dignity and respect and that the federal government and the state government and all government has a role and responsibility in the lives of all of us to ensure that the bottom lines that we are experiencing, that we can live with and live within and that um, we are equally protected and equally given opportunities to advance based upon our ability and our desire to work hard. And so um, I, tr you know, I try to communicate uh, to people who I am and why, why I am 
as I am. And I, I believe that the majority of the people are willing to hear that and believe in, in very similar values. I don't believe that this is a country and the majority that's made up of racists and anti-Semites and anti-Muslims and um, anti-LGBT people and anti-everything that's other than just white, male, and rich. Um, I don't believe that this, is this, that this is our country. And so I just try to speak to uh, what I believe is the, the, the greatness of our country and the goodness of people. Let me ask you this. Um, you, you came up through in politics for, for quite a while. You worked in state government. You were a state assemblywoman. You were the Democratic State Committee chairwoman. You were a majority leader in the General Assembly in New Jersey. And then you got to Congress um, after all of that. And what about the forces of people like, for example, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez uh, and others who got to Congress at a very young age um, and have tried to really shift the dialogue for the Democratic Party uh, to be not just much more to the left, but also much, just much more aggressive, much more in your face. What do you think of that as a force in Congress today um, after everything that you have seen throughout the course of your career? You know what, I think that we had, this, this is a great outcome in this uh, past election. First of all, minorities have a tendency to get elected at very late age, um, and, and this was reversed here. I, in in her case, in, in Johanna Hayes' case, in Ilhan's case, in um, Ayana's, and uh, and others, and so I'm glad to see these younger people be elected to Congress. They have a longer time to do the good work. Number two is that they came out of a sense of activism and community involvement. They were close to the community. They were listening. They were sharing. Number three is that they really are a reflection of what our values should be. Equity and equality on all levels, whether, from, whether it's the economy, the environment, social justice, um, whatever those issues are, these, these young people are standing up for equality of opportunity, a greener economy, um, a, a cleaner planet so that we can leave something to those who come beyond us. Um, and, and I love the idea that they're getting a lot of attention for this. They're a breath of fresh air. I don't think that they necessarily uh, represent any values differently than I've shared. Um, but they are certainly getting the attention, and I am glad because these are issues that we should be dealing with. They are advancing the um, Green New Deal. It's aspirational. Why shouldn't they be our values? Why shouldn't they be our goals? We may not attain them all, but they're all positive, they're all edifying, and they're all about everybody um, having an opportunity to thrive in, this, in, in, in our country. So I just, I'm, I'm very excited about them. I'm very glad that they're here. Do you think that Ilan Omar got a uh, raw deal? You know what, I think that um, Ilyan has not thought through the impact of what she was saying. I think that she was uh, speaking to larger issues, but didn't do it in a way that people could embrace the larger picture. I think she's learned from it. I think that um, she stood up with all of us yesterday when the uh, resolution 
uh, condemning anti-Semitism was offered, and um, I think she's going to be a great legislator. Uh, so what was one of... What, one of the things that I fight with a lot of my friends is voter apathy. And what what's one of the things that you saw where government first helped you and you're like, wow, my, my vote actually matters. It could be small. It could be something. I just like to give my friends mm-hmm. examples where, you know, it, it is important to be involved. It is important to speak your, your voice through voting. Okay, two things come to mind immediately. Number one was when I was very young and John Kennedy won his election and it was raised how important every vote in every precinct uh, was significant. And then the other thing that comes to mind is the fact that Hillary Clinton won, won the popular vote but lost the vote through the Electoral College, but she should have won both and that every vote counted then. And the sort of lethargy associated with her candidacy um, left us in, in the dire straits that we're in with this incompetent, evil, mean president of the United States that embarrasses me every single solitary day, domestically and internationally. And so Donald Trump is an illustration of why everybody's vote counts so very much. And for me, it was those two examples, decades apart and for different reasons. Congresswoman, you said you don't think he'll make it to 2020. You think he'll be impeached? You think he'll resign? Why do you say that? Well, I think he's going to be the subject of uh, greater scrutiny. Um, I think that birds of a feather flock together, and all of the birds that he's been flocking with are either indicted or are arrested or pled guilty. Um, I think that there are a few more left that are going to be dealt with. I don't know exactly what's going to happen to him. I just don't see him uh, serving out his term. But if he if he were to serve out this term, and if he were to be the um, nominee for uh, the next election, he'll be the greatest motivator of all to get uh, decent people out to vote. Who's your presidential candidate? Let me let me guess. <laughs> Coming from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My presidential candidate is my senator, Senator Cory Booker. That's great. What do you think about having more women involved, though? This, I mean, there's a record number of fabulous. women running. I think it's fantastic. And I think that uh, Democrats uh, have an embarrassment of riches here. I'm looking forward to the uh, debates because they're going to be debates on the minute distinctions in their values and in, the, in their priorities. And they're all gonna be talking about an agenda for the people. So I think it's gonna be exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Congresswoman, uh, our time with you is up. I have promised your staff that I keep it short. So I so appreciate you coming on as does Emily. Thank you so, so much. Hang in there, good You're luck. Up. Thanks for fighting the fight for all of us and we'll see you soon. All right, Julie, that was an incredible interview. We got a lot out of that. We got a lot out of that in a short period of time. And again, um, agree with with the congresswoman, disagree with her, um, talk about passionate, talk about committed. Um, I have known her for probably 25 years, and I can tell you this woman has not remotely lost any fire in the belly in all the years that I've known her. She has been on fire for decades. Um, She comes from an incredibly prominent political family. Her father was also um, a very, very, very influential 
legislator and you could tell, I think if he were around today, how proud of her he'd be because she is a huge, um, huge influence on a lot of, on a lot of women, not just African-Americans, but on, on women across um, the country who, who look up to her. The one thing we never got into with her, which I would be remiss in, in, in not adding, is that she's also a woman of great faith. And um, I know that she takes her faith very, very seriously. And that's something that I think you don't hear as much on, on the liberal side. Um, but I can assure you and tell you that I know that the role that faith plays in her life is something that informs her decisions every step of the way, every single day. And additionally, she uh, is a cancer survivor, which is really cool and also just shows the strength of women. She's back at work now. You know, this congresswoman just totally rocking it and just showing unbelievable strength. That's true. And she um, is, is walking, has been walking around for the last few months um, without a wig and just showing people um, after she lost her hair with a cancer battle um, how strong, powerful women can relate to that. And I love it. And if you're listening, Congresswoman, keep the hair the way it is. I love it. Love it. Um, and so I hope that other people who may be baby cancer survivors also draw inspiration from her as well. Um, so, Emily, what's making you salty this week? This is kind of on, well, it comes from a tabloid note, but uh, I feel like Justin Bieber right now, so he is going to therapy for depression and going to rehab, and I think that's great, but I feel like uh, his new wife, Haley, is taking a lot of crap for it, but it seems to be she's the one who encouraged him, and I just think it's 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 great that things that people are getting help for something like depression and that their spouses are supportive of that and it's not something to be ashamed of i'm trying to look at the positive of this and i don't think he should be getting all the shit he's getting for this is he, he i feel like he has been um and just like their marriage has been like oh was this like a, a hail mary for him to just try to be happy um, so I gotta admit, I know nothing about, I cannot name one Justin Bieber song, which means nothing because I don't know any songs that were not written by Fish after 1977. <laughs> but I will say, um, I agree with you that there's a stigma attached to mental health treatment that there isn't attached whatsoever to cancer treatment or to, um, uh, heart treatment or, or any physical ailment. And so, um, to the extent that people would not make fun of somebody for getting treatment for a physical ailment, they should not make fun of anybody for getting treatment for a mental ailment. Um, I'll tell you what's making me salty, and that's Donald Trump, of course, did what we all expected him to do, which is create a contrived, manufactured, quote-unquote, crisis to declare a national emergency on the border. Um, of course, there is no national emergency because emergencies, by their nature, are emergent, and uh, this is not something that's emergent, and, in fact... There have been fewer illegal border crossings in the last couple of years than there have been in decades. They've been falling and falling and falling. And so the fact that the president now has decided because he wants to placate Sean Hannity and Lou Dobbs and, and Ann Coulter and other people who are not too thrilled about the fact that he caved to the Democrats on uh, funding for the wall um, now have boxed him into the point where he has to declare a national emergency, and now I can't wait to hear all of them jump through 27 hoops talking about what a brilliant strategy this is on his part. The congresswoman talked about it a little bit on our show, but um, I don't know what the courts are going to do. The courts are the courts, and they don't always rule, um, especially depending on the judge you get in a way that makes sense to me, but then again, I'm not a lawyer. I will say, by its very nature, there is no emergency um, and the people that know that best are the people on the border. 
um, Congress people on the border of both parties who, who think this is all pretty ridiculous. If I was going to ask you, if I was, uh, Julie, what is your best uh, democratic strategy to push back against this? What would you say? Well, I mean, the strategy now is in the courts, but I think it's important for people to understand from a political perspective um, that we are all being played for fools. I mean, we're being played by a man who, uh, according to Sam Nunberg, his former um, chief strategist back in the early days and others, came up with the idea of, hey, build the wall. Let's build the wall because that'll go over well with the base. And nobody expected him to build the wall. Now he's boxed himself in um, to the point where he's going to now take money away from what? What is he taking money away from? From uh, other really important emergency priorities like hurricane relief? Uh, well, it's a good thing today's Valentine's Day, so at least, uh, even though we're salty right now, we can at least have sweets to end the day. That's true, and whoever um, you guys have spent Valentine's Day with, um, happy Valentine's Day to you, and if you're spending it alone, there's no better person to spend it with, and so to all the people there who are single, who are um, in a relationship, happy Valentine's Day to each and every one of you. Alrighty, see you later. <laughs>